Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. Yes, yes, that's where you can check us out where we broadcast live to the masses. We also go beyond the FM dial at RadioNorthland.org. We got the whole international thing covered. And you can check us out on TuneIn. Uh, if you happen to miss us, uh, for whatever reason, you can't listen to us live and in the moment. That's understandable. Things happen. Life happens. You can check out our archives. We've got seven years plus of uh, great classic episodes and interviews and at RadioNorthland.org slash Rasslin' Memories. Yes, it's Rasslin' Memories then and now. I'm Glenn Broggett. Flying solo this week. Uh, the grizzled vet, Michael McCurney, is uh, on assignment again. He's always looking and booking, as he's uh, telling me. I think that's his excuse to uh, to uh, slack off for the week. But that's okay, because you know what? We got a great guest, solid guest. Oh, he's uh, he's done some great stuff with, in the world of pro wrestling and the independent ranks. He's uh, also been involved with wrestle reunions. He's done a lot of promoting. He's also taken on the role of author, helping out uh, to finish up and actually expand uh, a book that has been released in a couple of different forms but this was uh, kind of I, I think this is the, the the full circle the ultimate edition of uh, the autobiography of, of the late great professional wrestler Bruno Sammartino and yes the book is called Bruno Sammartino the autobiography of wrestling's living legend and uh, we're going to talk about this with my guest and a few other things too and uh, wow let's just not waste any more time I really want to welcome him to the program for the first time Sal Carrenti welcome to wrestling memories then and now thank you Glenn glad to be here Yes, absolutely. And I, I first off, I want to give you great kudos for uh, the book itself. Uh, working on this project must have been a real labor of love, but also a bittersweet one with, of course, at the time of this recording, it's been a, a year and a day since the passing of Bruno San Martino. Uh, this book is just such a great read, and I, I cannot uh, say enough good things about it. Well, I, I greatly appreciate that. And, and yes, yesterday was uh, was kind of a tough day. Um you know, it was a day that I never thought would exist uh, a year ago. I just never considered Bruno not being here. And, uh, you know, several of us that were close to Bruno, J.J. Dillon is one. Another uh, guy who worked in the business for a long time, Steady, Davey O'Hannon. Uh, we all traveled to the wake together and, uh, you know, told Bruno stories all the way there to Pittsburgh from the New York, Pennsylvania area. And uh, None of us really ever thought there'd be a day where, where he wouldn't be around. And, uh, you know, so yesterday was definitely kind of a tough day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it hard. To, it's just still hard to uh, imagine uh, Bruno being gone. It's been a year, like I said, a year now. And just to think about how how very much in the public eye that Bruno was in the last few years of his life, especially with, uh, you know, the making the amends, you know, making peace with the WWE and also getting out there and making appearances. Uh, you had him uh, booked for a couple of really uh, cool signings and stuff. So you, he really kept himself out there and, and in the picture. And then with, with the, with his announcement of his death, it kind of took a lot of us off guard, even though Bruno was a little bit up in, up in the age, it just didn't seem right because Bruno just seemed like, I don't know. It seemed ageless. He kept himself in such great condition. Um, he, he sure did. And, and he still was in the public life, but to be quite honest with you, Bruno would have been more than happy if he would have just been forgotten about for the most part and was just able to stay at home with his wife, Carol, and, and with his grandchildren. And, um, you know, he had lived a life in the spotlight for a long time and his family had to share him with the country. And, um, he gave everything that he had and, you know, he would have really been fine to just be forgotten about, but you know, that never happened. And, uh, you know, he tried to accommodate and, you know, you mentioned the wrestle reunion events. He made a lot of accommodations for me that I know he would have not made for anybody else traveling in the winter. We used to run them, uh, on Royal rumble weekend. Bruno did not travel in the winter. 
you know, getting in the ring and getting physical with Larry Zabisco in uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, Wrestle Reunion 2. It took a lot to pull that off, but again, he did it for me. And, you know, what what can you say? Um, I don't know why he did, but uh, he gave me uh, much more consideration than he gave uh, anybody outside of the WWF. So <clears throat> I'm glad for that. Um, I'm very grateful for that. But, uh, yeah, he didn't really want um, to um, be away from home very much, and uh, he really didn't. So um, we were lucky that he did the things we asked him to do. And stuff around Pittsburgh, he didn't, certainly never minded that. Um, but he was never, hey, Sal, is the next booking coming or this or that? It just never and you mentioned you, know. you mentioned his wife, and of course, just how important a, a, a part that she played in his life, and and just what a great couple they were. And you know, you know, well, you know, Bruno had this big career too. Some of the sacrifices that had to be make made for the family. I mean, just the things that she, you know, the things she had to do while Bruno was away. I mean, being a single parent at sometimes. I mean, all power to her. So I bet it was great when Bruno had those times, even during his career, where he had a chance to settle down and kind of enjoy life with the wife and and with the kids. Uh, absolutely. You know, there were many um, different times where Bruno was on the road over and over and over and over. And he, you know, most of the time he had to put his foot down, um, you know, just to get some time off. And, uh, you know, even when he um, left Canada and went to New York, um, you know, his schedule was still so full and um, getting home was tough. And, you know, of course, maybe he wrestled in Pittsburgh, so that might have constituted a day home. But for the most part, this this man was gone. Um, and, you know, his wife, she had her parents, and, um, you know, Bruno's parents were alive in the in the early days. And, of course, they lived long lives. But um, So there was family around. But, you know, you're, you're there without your, your husband, and you've got, at one point, twins. Um, you know, and then, of course, on top of the tragedy of Bruno passing, Bruno's one of Bruno's twins, Danny, um, passed away, and you know I was just talking to uh, the other twin, Daryl, yesterday, and you know when we saw Danny at the wake. I mean, it would take a Mack truck to knock this guy over, and he ends up going in the hospital, and and then he's gone. So Carol really had to suffer two tremendous shocks in, in a very short period of time, um, and it was Carol really who, you know, I didn't know where direction to go with the book. For the most part, the book was done. My last conversation with Bruno was just, um, you know, going over a few things about the book and it was pretty much um, written. She said, look, what about the book? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I stopped doing anything with it because it was clear we were going to, we're going in a different direction here or, or in a bad direction. And she said, well, I think Bruno would want you to finish the book. Okay. Then finish it. We will. So, I mean, if she had said, Sal, I, I, you know, let's just end this. And I would have just ended it. I, I mean, that's the kind of relationship I feel I had with Bruno that, no, I'm not going to do anything disrespectful. And uh, if they didn't want it out, we wouldn't have put it out. But uh, Daryl said, you know, my mom said, you and dad spent hours and hours and hours on the phone going over this book. And I said, well, that's right. So, you know, we got it out. And uh, the important part to me about the book is I feel like it has allowed people to see Bruno at every level, the, the unbelievable childhood that he had. Uh, I don't know that I would have survived that. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure I would not have survived that. And I don't, you know, um, my mom, um, when I think about what his mom had to go through, I, I can't see my mom doing that. I can't see most of the people's moms that I know going through that and being able to survive. Um, 
you know, living up in those mountains and all of that. I mean, it's just crazy. And then how he was outside of the ring, how he treated everybody the same, whether they were some multimillionaire or just a regular fan, he treated everybody like they were somebody. And, and I really wanted people to, to understand who Bruno was, the way people like myself and J.J. Dillon um, and uh, Davey O'Hannon type, um, you know, everybody was the same. And that's the way it should be. Most of us don't do that. And uh, I have to say, maybe I'm even guilty of that. But Bruno never was. You just never felt like he treated somebody like they were worth less than the next person. Now, unless he had a reason. But there would have to be a provoked reason for him to treat somebody a little bit differently. If he just met you, you were just as important to him as anybody else. Yeah, and you in, in the book it is covered too about about Bruno. Uh, just you know, just what a what a generous person he was with his time in regards to you know in those days before uh, we had we had Make a Wish and the things that they've done through the years with various celebrities and, and children and the like. But Bruno was always uh, someone who would uh, lend some time uh, to go visit the kids in the hospital and stuff. And he wasn't one of those guys that was like you know doing it for some sort of publicity. You really uh, from the book and reading some of those stories really just could feel the how genuine and what a connection that Bruno had and that that in part I mean that explains it tenfold just how big it was and it went past just you know the ethnic thing it was something that really crossed over to other other areas too with with other people and and just you know the way things he did just for example visiting the kids in the hospital was just such a stand-up thing to do and he didn't have to but he did well that's right he was make a wish without a coordinator you know he did all he did all that stuff on his own and you know, um, and he cheated death so many times. I mean, you know, so many times that Bruno should have been gone. And even, you know, what eventually got him this complications from this rheumatic fever, um, the way his son Danny explained it to me is the doctors say that anybody who uh, has rheumatic fever will eventually die from rheumatic fever. Um, the a normal guy would take about uh, 65 years old. But they said because Bruno was in the amazing condition he was in, he made it into his eighties. It was amazing, and and what I could, what I want to know too is uh, when when did things start to get rolling as far as uh, with you and Bruno putting together uh, and kind of expanding upon a book that, like I mentioned, it had already been released in a couple of different forms here uh, through the years. His autobiography. What made him kind of what what was it? Because you know Bruno was from the old school, but what made you what made him finally kind of decide and with you, of course, to to put something together that that kind of goes a little bit beyond where those other books that had went before. Well, let me give you the, the chronological history of the book. Um, you know, I met Bruno through a gentleman named Black Jack Brown um, in late 1989, probably. Uh, they were doing a wrestling gab line, it was called, where Bruno would be on and talk to wrestling fans. And at the time, I was a troubleshooting referee going to Puerto Rico and working with the AWA, doing some TVs for them. And um, I had done some TVs for Crockett. And, uh, worked for Vince, you know, here and there, but never, never did any TV for those folks. And, uh, you know, Bruno didn't know me from anybody, but Blackjack explained to him who I was because he'd hear me talking to the fans and he felt like I knew what I was talking about. So he asked him and we eventually became friends. Somebody asked me, a gentleman named Joel Goodhart, who uh, started running events up in the Northeast and he was bringing guys in from, from uh, other places. Like he brought the Jerry Lawler Austin Idol feud to uh, uh, Philadelphia, and uh, he brought many other matches from different areas to the to town. And um, he had me count as a referee. I was part of a thing that counted the first vertical pin ever in wrestling. 
um, in a false count anywhere match. And I thought it was kind of crazy at the time, but, you know, for a while I ended up being known as one of the guys that can't, because there were two of us who we were counting on each side of the, of the padding that was on the, on the building. Um, they asked me to get Bruno to appear on an event, and I was able to convince him. Um, his son was going to wrestle Larry Zabisco for the AWA world title. Paul Heyman was going to, at the time was Paulie Dangerously, was going to manage Zabisco, and Bruno would manage his kid, and, and I would be in the, in the ring as the referee. So we did that, and eventually we just bonded. Now, we did lose touch at one point, but a gentleman named Bob Raskin out of New Jersey who had Bruno's number, and I knew Bob. He also ran events. He was affectionately known as the only honest promoter in wrestling, and, and that may or may not have been true, but he certainly was a very honest, straightforward man. Um, I called Bob and said, hey, you know, Bruno's number's been changed. I don't have it. And he says, uh, um, well, I can't give it to you, but I'll check and see. Bruno told him to give it to me. And, you know, eventually we just started working out um, where I would do events, um, you know, with him. And then it started eventually his constant complaining because fans were complaining to him. The original book had been written in 1990. It was released in Pittsburgh, completely sold out. It was a very bad business situation from what I understand. So the book was not available to anybody. So people who had bought the book would see Bruno announce for, for appearances. They would start selling the book on eBay for $80, $90 a pop. And just so Bruno could sign it. Well, Bruno did not do well with this at all. He would complain and complain and complain. And I'm not the type of guy that can listen to something over and over and over without trying to take some action. So I said, you know what, Bruno, I'm, I'm kind of, I've had enough of this. I'm going to see if I can go get a copy of the book, which I did. And uh, I had some companies scan it in to a thing, which I didn't even know if that was possible. I dreamed it up in my head, but found out it was possible. And then I got some guys to edit the book because the first version was, was really edited extremely poorly. Wrestlers' names were spelled wrong. It was just a mess. So I had some guys fix it up, uh, Brian Thompson out of the uh, central part of the country and Brian Trammell from uh, Wrestling Riot Online, who I used to write a blog for. And we put it out in conjunction. I had just added a couple of pages to it, maybe a few more pictures. There was nothing to speak of. It was basically the same book, uh, just cleaned up to not be as bad. And uh, we just sold that for 11 years. <clears throat> Anybody who wanted the book could get it. But, you know, there were no more complaints about people having to spend obscene amounts of money to get the book. And that was really the only goal we had. Well, <clears throat> eventually, as Bruno was talking, I said, Bruno, I heard an interview you did, and you said this and this. He said, well, son, what do you want me to do? He, he said, after a while, it becomes embarrassing. He said, I can't, <clears throat> I, I can't keep going this way. I said, well, if that's the case, Bruno, let's update the book. I said, because that's the biggest complaint about it is that, you know, you basically stayed in character in the book, and um, people don't really want that. He said, well, sure, do whatever you want. And that's where we got to. Now, when you're putting this together now, now you have the, uh, some of the original content, but how much more of it, well, how much did you expand upon it uh, as far as uh, yeah. from, from, from the differences between the last uh, time the book was out until the, your, your, your recent addition to it? Uh, what, what more is in this book? Because uh, you know, this is definitely something that was uh, expanded upon and a lot of the kayfabe stuff taken out of it. But can you tell us a little bit more about what went into it additionally? Well, <clears throat> there was a lot of stuff pulled out. Right. So um, the different things that were pulled out were replaced with either real life, real life stories, the way they really happened. But then we also covered from 1990 forward. Then, of course, the wrestler tributes and 
and things like that. You know, there's different stories in there, like about Lou Albano. And um, the biggest thing was not talking about the, the matches like they were a legitimate competition. The things that were pulled out were things Bruno uh, wanted pulled out if they were not along the line of what I just talked about. Uh, there were some things he just was happy to pull out. And I said, you know, Bruno, these things are in the other copy of the book all this time. But he just asked that they be pulled out. So we pulled them out. But the book is double in size almost. It's 567 pages. Uh, the color version for the true wrestling fan, I think, is the is the way to go. There's 275 color pictures, or about 400 pictures in the book in total. Um, and everybody who's bought the color version says it's well worth it. It's, uh, you know, it's not a cheap book, but if you really um, are, are a fan, it's probably the way to go. If you're just a casual person or a non-fan, because there have been non-wrestling fans that have read this book, and they're very happy with uh, with what the book is, and because it's not just a book about a wrestler. It's a book about a man who came from really nothing to worldwide fame. But that that's really the, the basis of it, is just get the stuff out that made it sound like a legitimate competition. Um, you know, obviously we address bleeding in the ring and the reality of the Zabisco feud and, and things like that, that, uh, you, you know, the, the way this thing came about and, you know, maybe it would have never happened. Uh, I mean, if Bruno didn't have the pull that he had, it may have never happened. And if it did happen, it wouldn't have happened to the extent that it, that it did. We're talking with Sal Carrente. Sal is uh, talking about Bruno San Martino in a wonderful book. He expanded uh, Bruno San Martino, the autobiography of wrestling's living legend here on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. And you talked about this book being not only for the uh, the wrestling fan, the uh, wrestling historian, the wrestling buff. Uh, a lot of this, when I, I got out of it too, was uh, just a, a tale of true survival and, and really in, really an insp- inspiring tale, uh, like you said, of a kid who came from Europe, who survived survived coming and enough to, to get here and, and make his way through the United States being this young man who, who found his way to great success but it wasn't again it wasn't just a an easy road paved with gold when he got to the United States uh, it was a big world and it was a new world for Bruno but I think one of the things that I got out of the book was you know getting involved with weightlifting and getting involved with that world and getting involved with fitness was some of the things that really kind of started to help open the door for him as he was a new uh, you know a, a an immigrant coming in from the, from you know from Europe here and adjusting to life in the United States. Well, you know, when you come over here in those days to the United States, you can't speak any English. You're basically a what, maybe an 80-pound weakling or something, and you're getting beat up every day because you can't speak the language and, and you are just a weakling. Um, that's motivation to go to the gym and, and start working out. And then you know, Bruno really enjoyed that and, you know, basically became one of the strongest men in the world. That definitely, you know, helped propel him. But even then, you know, being in the position that he was in didn't really help. He went through, obviously, a lot of turmoil. And if it wasn't for UConn Eric, um, you know, hooking him up with Frank Tunney, and it probably is more than just that. If Frank Tunney's business wasn't, you know, really in the, in the sewer, maybe he wouldn't have been willing to take a chance on a guy who came with no... Um, uh, you know, no good references. Basically, he was labeled a troublemaker. That's a real problem. <laughs> Let's face it, that, that's an absolute problem. But when you've got a guy whose territory is in, in desperate states, well, it really doesn't matter. What, what, how much worse can it get, right? And then, of course, then you find out, well, you were what you're told isn't true anyway.
And in both, you know, at the time, you know, Frank Tunney, of course, his business was a bit lagging in Toronto. He took the chance on Bruno because at the time, uh, yeah, this was a, a bit of a, the, the beginning of a the rockier part. Uh, it was in the his early part of his career that he, he had a bit of a rocky relationship, to put it mildly, with uh, with Vincent uh, J. McMahon, Vince Sr. Um, he, he absolutely did. Um, you know, what can you say? Bruno is a guy who tries to deal straight up and and that's not necessarily what happened. And, you know, when they saw, you know, who, who really knows what goes through a man's mind? Because here's a guy that a few years later you're going to take, and he's going to carry your belt for years and years, and he's going to pack arenas for you. They didn't really see that, right? They, they just, mm-hmm. they didn't see it. They didn't see this is the guy. Let's just groom this guy. Nobody, nobody got that. And so you have to deal with these kind of egos and insanity and then, you know, the corruption that goes on and um, how these athletic commissions were controlled. And, you know, you're not told anything. There's no hearings. There's no nothing. You're just told you're suspended around the world and nobody will tell you nothing. Well, if you have no attorney and, or anything like that, then, then what do you do? Right? Well, you go back to Pittsburgh and you go work in construction. You know, or you go be a carpenter. And, you know, the truth is Bruno wasn't the best carpenter in the world. <laughs> so, you know, Bruno was made to do this. He understood people. And uh, it took Vince McMahon having nobody. And the truth is, for over 20, 30 years, it's not like there was a whole lineup of guys to hand this belt to. There wasn't. And, you know, where Bruno stands out in this business is who else do you know that gave their title back you know, and if anybody did give their title back, first of all, it wasn't a world championship. Secondly, it would have been in a territory where there was no money being made. Somebody would have left just to be able to eat. But as far as the world championship, whoever gave back the world championship was to take this away from me or I'm quitting. Now, one or two guys have told me that they refused to take the title, but that was because they had situations that were more lucrative um, without the title, being able to travel, maybe go to Japan here or there. And it just didn't make sense for them to commit to the territory and be a champion. But here's Bruno San Martino. Um, the truth is, if there had been a, a more long-range plan, instead of Bruno being at all these B clubs, um, if he had just worked the A clubs like he did in his second run and had more time to heal and rest his body, he would have probably been around that whole time that he was gone. He would have probably been able to be around. The other thing that I always laugh about when Bruno did make a comeback and the ring had, you know, become a lot more flexible when he got in the dressing room, you know, he said to the guys, guys, this ring is like a trampoline. If I had rings like this, cause you know, they worked in boxing rings in the old days. He said, if I had rings like this, I would have been the champion for 20 years because you know, he, he took a, he took a real beating. Um, and you know, to me, it, it never made sense when, when we talked about it because you had other guys that could have filled these secondary clubs or these high schools and, you know, the kangaroos or strongbow at some point, um, any of these guys more than likely could have filled these secondary clubs, but you know, they had the world championship out there every night. And, uh, you know, that's where, you know, ultimately it ended up biting them because, uh, Bruno insisted, uh, you know, it took them a year and they found nobody, you know, that he gave up the belt and then, you know, well, why did they come back to Bruno? I don't care what anybody tells me, but Vince and his son did not come um, looking for Bruno because the territory was doing great. They came because they needed to put the belt back on him. 
I mean, a, a guy like Vince McMahon Sr. and even Vince McMahon Jr., these guys don't want to come to you. It's not like you were coming to them for the first time, right? You know, you've already had a relationship. So it's not like, hey, we're Vince McMahon, we're the WWF, we're the WWF, whatever it is. These are situations that existed before. Bruno didn't go to them. No. Right? They no. came to him. Well, why? Because they needed that. You know, there was not a long list of guys. It's like if Bruno didn't take that belt from Buddy Rogers, who would have? And who would have run with it? And, you know, when it was time to, to get super, the belt off superstar Billy Graham, well, who was going to do that, right? Just think, if it wasn't backwards, who would it have been? Um, and I had this discussion with Bruno once. Okay, let's just say it wasn't Backlund. I think, I think it was Eddie Graham who suggested that Backlund would be the guy. But let's say it wasn't. I'm not sure who you think would be the guy. Bruno only came up with one name, a gentleman named Mario Milano that had worked in the, in the States in the 70s. And I said, so I think I would have given him a try. I mean, he didn't even say it like he's 100% sure. He said, well, I think that's who I would have given a try. Okay, at the time I had not heard of Mario Milano, so I certainly wouldn't have came up with his name. But, but that was the one name. When you think about it, when the belt was put on somebody over the years, who else? If Vern Gagne didn't keep the belt so long in the AWA and Bachman wouldn't keep the belt so long, who else would have taken it? And how long would they have had it? It's, you know, these guys are not on every street corner that, that have that thing that people want to come out and see them on a regular basis. And, you know, the thing that Bruno uh, had, too, and that uh, was taken to its fullest advantage of in, in, in Toronto with Frank Tunney was something that le- also was something that led to a lot of uh, people coming out to see the champion. It was his Italian heritage. And back then, you know, a lot of things were made and a lot of exagger- some more exaggerated than others out of uh, different ethnicities. And uh, Bruno, it was like a perfect combination. I mean, even in Toronto and leading up to the New York area was uh, having that Italian heritage and how much that drew in on top of the uh, fans who were coming in already. Well, the the amazing thing was, I, I believe that there was about a half a million, if I remember correctly, a half a million or so um, Italian residents in Toronto. There was an entire Italian media. So, on, and Bruno, of course, could speak the language. So when he reached out to these people, they were more than happy to cover him. You know, when he described these amazing feats of strength he could do and and so forth. So, you know, all of that, all that certainly helped. And it certainly led into... Uh, Tony giving him a shot. Hey, there's a lot of Italian people in Toronto. But, you know, I was on a radio show yesterday, and uh, I was on two different radio shows, one very early in the morning with a close friend of Bruno's who's talked about in the book, a gentleman named Larry Rickard, um, works at the, I guess what I found out is the oldest commercial radio station in the country out of Pittsburgh, and Bruno was a frequent guest on the show. And then another show in the afternoon, and both of them, you know, kind of went down the road of Bruno really attracted the Italian people. And I said, you know, it wasn't just the Italian people. Now, on the second show, somebody called in as soon as I got off the air and said, hey, look, you, you know, um, we're, uh, I'm Italian. We love Bruno, too. I, I mean, so I'm Irish. We love Bruno, too. It really, did Italian people love him? Of course they did. But it wasn't limited to, to Italian people. It was just everybody. He understood how to give people what they wanted. And he had to do that. Plus, uh, one of the Bruno, to me, the biggest success for Bruno, I don't care who you are, you're going to these clubs every week. Uh, I'm sorry, every month. You can't be repetitive. And Bruno was not repetitive. And that is the single most important thing because how long does it take the regular fan to know that you're looking at the same thing month in and month out? It really doesn't take that long to figure that out. And uh, eventually people are going to tire of that. So Bruno, 
always made sure that he adapted his style to his opponent's style. That, to me, was critical. And, uh, you know, from time to time, there were different guys that Vince McMahon might owe the promoter a favor to. Hey, could you get Tank Morgan and run him through your territory? Or Jess Ortega or Bull Ramos. These are guys that um, Bruno named all, always in conversation. And he said, you know, so I never really minded so much, even though I didn't really think that they were maybe the best the best fit. But these were big guys. And when I, we brought them in and took them around for a loop, those were guys that I'd be, there was no program, there was no return matches, there was no nothing. And the people needed to see that, right? The people needed to see the champion just beat somebody. And uh, that made all the sense in the world to me. Everybody who's just program match return, program match, you know, after a while, how long does it take any fan to figure this out? And this is why all these years later, when Bruno's ready to hang up the belt, nobody wants him to give it up and the fans are still packing the arenas because they didn't turn out every month and just see the same old thing over and over. And, and I think that that was, a, that was a very important part of his success. I mean, 11 years combination of having that belt, how do you do that if you're repetitive? Can you imagine going and watch somebody do the same thing every month for 11 years? No. At some point, aren't you going to say, I, I, if I want to watch reruns, I could go home and watch them. And that's what I mean. What it meant so much too when when you know Bruno ended his first reign and just what it meant to that crowd in attendance in on January eighteenth, nineteen seventy one, when Bruno finally uh, he got a bit of a break. Uh, he lost the championship uh, to Ivan Koloff. Just uh, what I've been hearing uh, from people talking about who have been at those ma- at that match through the years. Just the crowd reaction to what what happened, what they had just witnessed. Because after so many years, you know Bruno uh, Bruno on top, having this Russian character, you know, or this Russian wrestler. Ivan Koloff come in and take the belt off and really, really kind of uh, knocked him for a loop. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, it was Bruno's choice. He's the one um, that, uh, you know, suggested Ivan for that. And uh, he, he was very disappointed when it turned out to just be a one month uh, thing. And, you know, this is the way that Vince did things, you, you know, and even the son did the same thing. And I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's just a matter of opinion, even with Hulk Hogan. Quite honestly, I don't know that I would have done it the way they did it. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, but when they brought Hulk Hogan in, I might have had the Sheik just run away. And let's come back again in a cage match. You, you know, let's let him run off. Let him get, beaten, get his head beat in and then come back in a cage and, and do it that way. But that's just not the way they did things. The Sheik, again, was a transitional champion, had the belt for a certain amount of time. And I think... In all the shows, we saw some spot shows, but he was even not wrestling all top-tier talent. I think I think I was there one night, the world champions wrestling Bob Bradley on a spot show. Well, I'm not sure that, you know, Bob was a good hand, but he wasn't a top guy. And you've got the world champion in there, in there wrestling him, and then goes into the garden of loser. But that was the formula that WWE used. You know, but Bruno thought that Ivan, you know, always thought Ivan was a tremendous talent, and he thought that Ivan could have... Uh, could have carried the ball longer. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of uh, Bruno's uh, big matches at Shea Stadium. Uh, of course, we're going to, I want to talk here about uh, uh, the match that became infamous, I mean, for Bruno, when he, the match against Stan Hansen, or that uh, was initially a rematch uh, from uh, the bout where he had broken his neck. Uh, but first of all, before we talk about the Stan, ma- uh, the eventual match at Shea with Stan, uh, talk, he ended up, uh, Bruno came back and actually worked uh, a babyface uh, title match with, with uh, champion Pedro Morales. He did. 
it was an interesting thing for sure. And, uh, I think it went, what, 75 minutes, um, of Broadway in the thing, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that right? Uh, that, that sounds correct. Yes. You know, obviously I, I think it did pretty well at the box office. Um, you know, again, not your normal thing, but Bruno never minded, um, you, you know, doing something like that. Um, you know, I never talked to Pedro about it, so I don't, I don't know what, what his feeling was uh, about it. But uh, I, I think it, it, was, it was all fine. It wasn't something we discussed a lot. A lot more discussion about the Stan Hansen match, of course. Um, you, you know, that was uh, that was a whole thing. And, you know, I've gotten to know Stan fairly well over the years. I've refereed at least one match of his, maybe more. But, you know, when you have a close relationship to Bruno, you end up, you know, instantly connecting to the people around him. Um, and Stan, of course, he, you know, he knows that that whole thing made his career, but Bruno never gave him a hard time. They remained, uh, they remained good friends. Stan would call him, you know, from time to time. And, uh, Bruno had nothing but good things to say about Stan. And, uh, you know, it's crazy what happened that it ended up making his career. I remember he told me that, uh, I think maybe Joe Aguchi called from Japan and it was either Joe Aguchi or Mr. Ina. But I think it was Joe Aguchi who said, uh, Baba wants to, uh, you know, advertise Stan Hansen man to break your neck. And he said, sure, if you think it'll help. You know, and obviously it helped Stan a great deal. And Stan had a, you know, Stan had a great career over it. But uh, he certainly always, always felt bad about it. But Bruno survived and, um, and he went on. Bruno had a second reign as uh, WWWF champion, uh, and that reign had ended in 1977 uh, at the hands of uh, superstar Billy Graham. It was right around that time uh, that, that, that Bruno was, uh, I think, was that a, can, would you, safe to say it would be right around that time where he really wanted to kind of start slowing things down uh, in his career uh, and, and not be that full-time guy and kind of, you know, still do some work on, you know, and, and he, he did some traveling uh, uh, after he, he lost the title. But, I mean, was this just kind of the time where it began – where he was like going to wind it down at that point in his career. And I'm sorry. Now you're talking after the Hanson match or after the Koloff? Uh, after the Hanson match, after he, uh, after he actually, uh, it dropped the title of the superstar Billy Graham. Well, you know, Bruno liked the Bruno liked the freedom. Um, that's what it was. He didn't mind working, but he just wanted to do what he wanted to do when, he, when he wanted to do it. That that's the best way to, uh, say it. And when he gave up the title, though, it wasn't for anything other than to heal. Um, you know, that was it. I mean, if his, like I say, if in the first run, if he wasn't working all these secondary clubs and stuff, he may have never dropped that belt. He may have had it straight through, but he never was given a chance to heal. Um, he never walked away just to walk away. He walked away because his body was too beat up. And, you know, nobody saw it because he went out and gave 100%, so nobody really understood. But he, he was very beat up. So, like, even after the first run with Koloff, well, he didn't have a problem. He'd come back and he'd do this and he'd do that. But he wasn't out there six days a week, sometimes seven days a week, getting beat up, working in these hard rings. And he was, you know, he'd go, um, you know, predict the bruiser two or three nights. And then maybe he wouldn't do nothing for a week. You know what I mean? He had time to train. He had time to to rest up. I mean, you know, again, when you're a boss, are you playing the long game or the short game? Well, maybe people looked at Bruno the same way I did, like he was invincible. Maybe Vince McMahon figured nothing can really stop this guy. But again, you're working in boxing rings. You know, when Bruno hit a turnbuckle, he hit a turnbuckle. 
you know, he um, he took the the full brunt of a, of a lot, and and always wanting to entertain the fans. So eventually, the body's going to get beat up, and he just needed time to heal. Once he dropped the belt to Koloff, a few months went by. He felt better. So and so would call, "Hey, I'd like you to go here. I'd like you to go there." So he'd do it. You know, and he was he was making decent money when he came back the first time. It was because they came to him, and it was, "Hey, this time." You'll only work the big clubs. You don't have to work any secondary clubs. And uh, everything will be fine. And then, you know, they had told him a year. That was the deal, a year. Well, he, when he went to them, they said, okay, time's up. Well, they still had nobody. They had, didn't find Billy Graham yet. So they said, well, what's the problem? You're making really good money. We've kept our word. You're only working the big clubs. And he said, you know what? They were right. So I said, okay. And I just kept going. He said, but then eventually it just got to a point where, you know, I didn't want the daily grind anymore. Uh, I just needed to, to, to rest up and, and hit spots. So I don't think he ever truly wanted to walk away, but how much can one man take? We're talking Bruno Sammartino and the wonderful book, Bruno Sammartino, the autobiography of wrestling's living legend with co-author Sal uh, Corrente here on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. And uh, as Bruno was winding things down, uh, he, he made it back to the WWF uh, around 1979, 1980 uh, in a role uh, as a color commentator, but also uh, ended up in one of the more memorable, uh, I guess you would say, feuds of his uh, career as far as uh, the, the late 70s. 70s into the early 80s uh, with a guy that had a very strong tie to him uh, goes back to the days where this guy as a kid uh, you know got his autograph and asked him how, how he can break into the business we're talking uh, let's talk a little bit about getting into the color commentary world and also this the feud of all feuds with Larry Zabisco uh, you know I knew Larry Zabisco before I actually knew him at Bruno because as a referee for the NWA Larry was there um, I remember you know, the feud it was the first live show I ever attended. I grew up in a place called Yonkers, New York, um, not far from what was then called Shea Stadium. And I had just started wrestling, uh, started watching wrestling. I was late bloomer as far as the kids in my neighborhood and stuff. Um, they all were always talking about Chief J. Strongbow and George Steele and Peter Maivia and Bruno. And I didn't know Ivan Putsky. I didn't know really much of what they were talking about. I ended up catching wrestling one day when the Mets were playing on the West Coast and wrestling used to come out at midnight. So it was five o'clock. There was nothing else to watch. In those days, you only had your five channels. So um, I watched it and I ended up liking it. And uh, eventually, um, this thing with Bruno and Zabisco came to be. And it became the hottest feud ever here on the East Coast. And I remember um, when I was working for the NWA, driving down the road with Sting, um, in 1987, and I was trying to explain to him the intensity of the feud, and he just he just wouldn't get it. I, I mean, it just he he just couldn't wrap his mind around it at the time. And uh, I said, Steve, I'm trying to explain to you what this is. I said, when Zabisco goes out there, especially here in the Northeast, all people are going to do is scream for Bruno, and he just wasn't buying it. Well, Larry goes out there in Philadelphia, and sure enough. They are literally screaming Bruno's name. And, you know, eventually he'd grab the microphone and just say, Bruno sucks. <laughs> People would just go nuts, right? So uh, I used to tell Bruno those stories later, and he would laugh. But I went to Sting, and I, I said, Steve, you hear that? Yeah, yeah, I heard it. You know, he just couldn't get it. That seven years later, people were still talking about the intensity of this feud. 
um, even people who were non-believers when I was in high school, I believe I was in the 11th grade um, when, when that happened. And the guys in my school who just would always say, whether they watched wrestling or not was not relevant. They just didn't believe it. But when I got to school that Monday morning, they said, we saw, we know, it was real. We get it. And, and that's what it was all about. Um, you know, this was really done more of a favor to Larry. And uh, let's face it, the rest of his career was made uh, off of that. And, uh, you, you know, there were some decisions made, whether they were the right ones or the wrong ones, I don't know. But I, And I honestly think the feud could have went on even longer. I, I think it could have made at least one more loop around. But uh, it was obviously a huge thing. It made a lot of money at the time. You know, you're talking about uh, you know a guy like Zbysko, who knows, probably made about $100,000. $100,000 in 1980 isn't what it is today. You know, they were packing things everywhere, and I'm pretty sure Bruno felt like they would have done even more at Shea Stadium, but there had been a threat of rain. And if I remember correctly, there were other things going on, according to Bruno, that night, and I don't remember exactly what, but I think there may have been a football game and, and a baseball game or something like that. And we still grew through 45,000 people. It was, it was unbelievable, uh, the energy in the garden. And then when they went around to the secondary clubs, um, I was stuck in one of those clubs. Or not, I don't want to say stuck, but I felt like we were all trapped. If anything broke out, I don't know how we would have got out of there. It was the Westchester County Center in White Plains, New York. I mean, just getting Bruno and Larry to the ring was unbelievable. I said, if there's a riot here or something, we're, we're dead. There's no way to get out of this place. It was packed to the rafters. Everybody was out for blood. They wanted to see Zabisco just beat into a pulp. And uh, what can you say? You, you know, the, the support that Bruno had from the people it was, is just unmatched, in my opinion. So, you know, we're not talking about somebody who had support for three months and then the, the fire sizzled out. I, I mean, this went on. Even in his last matches, where in his mind, he really wasn't the same performer. I was there when, in the garden when him and Tito Santana wrestled uh, Adrian Adonis and Randy Savage. And I just remember looking around. People were like lunatics, just wanting Bruno to destroy these guys. And, you know, you talk to a guy like the honky-tonk man who, you know, has done some wrestle reunions for me and stuff like that. And, you know, I get to talk to him from time to time when I bump into him. Nothing in the world but respect for Bruno when he had to uh, end up working with Bruno. Um, I think Jake Roberts uh, came off the road and, and Bruno had to step in and, um, and then one time, I think they were going to be in Boston. He said, Tom, we didn't even have time to cut any promos. All they did was put a thing on the bottom saying that Bruno was replacing if it was Jake or not. I don't know. He said, but that was it. He said, the place was packed. He said, that's just the way it, uh, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> the people still believed in him. They wanted to see him. One of the, the more unfortunate things uh, happened in the 1980s as we moved into the late 80s was was with Bruno and, and the fallout he had, falling out he had with the WWF and Vince McMahon Jr. Now, this was a feud uh, and just a lot of hurt feelings that lasted for, for decades here until, thankfully, in the last few years before Bruno passed, there was uh, some, some peace made and some olive branches uh, handed out. But at that time, boy, it was quite something, uh, you know, when this thing started to go down to see Bruno uh, speaking out against Vince and just uh, how how much animosity got cooked up over it and, and how much it, it, it stayed on the boil for, for all these years until it finally got resolved. Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't think it's any secret. Without Triple H, none of this happens. Um, Bruno and I had talked many, many, many times about the Hall of Fame. I, I, I mean, more than I can even remotely count. And, uh, you know, I was a supporter of him going in. 
Uh, and Bruno knew that certain people would be happy with him going in. Certain people would not be happy. But I'm sure in the back of his mind, he always knew, hey, one day if I'm not here, they can induct me anyway. But, you know, no matter what, they can end up throwing me in there. But none of that, none of that really meant to think. It was the right person. Um, if, if this had to come down to between Bruno and Vince, it never gets settled. That, in my opinion, is just a fact. Now, I think Vince was great with Bruno from the time it did get settled. Um, you know, they talked a few times, not a lot, but they did talk a few times. And, uh, you know, Bruno certainly told me about it, and, and, you know, they were good conversations. But without Triple H, make no mistake, this, this doesn't happen. Bruno's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, at least, he's, you know, maybe he'd have been inducted this year. But he certainly wouldn't have been inducted when he was alive. And, you know, the initial call came to me. And uh, at first, Bruno didn't even want to take the call. He said, find out what they want. You know, but uh, it was from Hunter. And, uh, you know, Hunter was the right guy. You know, trained by Killer Kowalski, who Bruno had a tremendous amount of respect for. You know, I'm sure uh, Hunter heard many stories about Bruno from Kowalski. So they had that common bond there just to even start things off. And... Uh, you know, sometimes it just takes a cooler head. And, and I'm not picking on Vince there. You know, somebody else to get in the conversation. You know what I mean? Some more of a, even though Hunter is Vince's son-in-law and worked for the company, he wasn't coming from an emotional perspective. Vince's perspective was somewhat emotional. Bruno's perspective was somewhat emotional. Hunter just wanted to get a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame, should be... Um, in a position after leading the company for so long that he was a featured person in that Hall of Fame, and that's all he wanted to do. Um, certainly, there was no real personal agenda. It was what was best for business, and uh, he certainly had no personal animosity whatsoever. So, um, he, you know, it just it just came down to it. But um, you know, it was Hunter, and uh, if anybody's happy about Bruno being in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Triple H is the man to uh, to thank for that. And let's talk about the the, the induction, the ceremony itself. Uh, what a perfect venue! What a per- everything just fell into place in 2013. Uh, you know, having Bruno be honored at the the place that you know Madison Square Garden and Bruno San Martino. You want to talk about sellouts? You want to talk about putting butts in those seats? Bruno did it for on a consistent basis for so many years, and to come back, you know, it, under that Madison Square Garden banner and to be inducted into the Hall after all this long, you know, estrangement, and to be inducted also by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was just a magic in the air sort of a moment. Right. Well, and, and you know, that was a pretty much all Arnold. Um, you know, Bruno had known Arnold for many, many years, and, um, you know, he rearranged his schedule. He wanted to be the one to induct uh, to induct Bruno. And, yeah, it was the garden, and that's probably pushed. You know, when the initial call came in, I did discuss it with somebody. And, uh, you know, somebody that I knew Bruno who wouldn't mind having a minimal discussion, I said, hey, the office is reaching out to talk to Bruno, and this, he's well, probably about the Hall of Fame. I said, it's way too early for that. He said, so in a typical year with a typical guy, I would tell you, it's yes, it's far too early. He said, if they want him for the Hall of Fame, they know that Bruno's not going to be like everybody else who's here. They're just going to call up, and, and they're going to say, okay, sure, I'll be glad to do it. If it's going to happen, they know it's going to be a big deal, and it's going to take time to work out. So I'm sure it's about the Hall of Fame. And, of course, it ended up being about the Hall of Fame. Uh, but it was very early. Normally, their guys not contacted 
till probably two, three, four months afterwards, because as a general rule, pretty much everybody is going to say yes. But, you know, Bruno certainly didn't start out with yes. He just started out with no, just like, um, you know, they would have expected to start out. But like I said, um, you're talking about the right guy. You know, Triple H was the right was the right guy to do this. And uh, for probably for various reasons. And, and I, I do believe, you know, who knows what Walter Kowalski told Triple H about Bruno, the integrity, the type of man that he was. And, uh, you know, Triple H came in with a fresh perspective of the business. Uh, I think on both sides, Bruno was coming in with personal issues. Vince, Vince Jr. would have been coming in with personal issues. That's very hard to get around in any... You know, especially for two guys who really don't don't really need the other, right? I mean, let's face it, Bruno's life was set. And Vince has a thriving company. Whether Bruno ever made it in the Hall of Fame or not was not going to really affect. I mean, you might hear about it, but it isn't going to affect the stock price. It isn't going to affect arena attendance. It isn't going to affect any of that, right? But this was a case of the right thing needed to happen, and Triple H was the one to do it. Um, I do think there probably were fans that were not happy. But I think for the most part, the fans were happy because a guy was getting an honor that he truly earned and deserved. I think every year people question, why is so-and-so getting in versus so-and-so? Well, why? Look, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a real Hall of Fame in, in the traditional way that sports are. It's, you know, the man who, who owns the company decides who he wants to honor. And, and that's okay. But in this case... There's, you know, there's a few people, and Bruno's certainly not the only one. I, I think for many people, he may have been on the top of the list. But I think anybody else who the fans would demand to be in the Hall of Fame is either in it or will be, will be going in it, right? I, I, don't, I don't think you're ever going to be in another situation where somebody who truly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame is not in there. It, you know, I, I mean, I guess you could start talking about the Owen Hearts, but... Uh, yeah, again, a completely different situation. If all things being equal, uh, I think anybody who truly deserves to be in that Hall of Fame will probably be in it. But sometimes there are things. Uh, people question why Ivan Koloff's not in the Hall of Fame. Well, you know, this is where real world uh, plays into it. You know, who knows why it took Bob Backlund so long to go in the Hall of Fame. Man was a champion for six years. It was a long time before he was in. Um, I, I don't know how much... Uh, feedback there was on that. I've been the first one to say, how is uh, how is the guy who held your championship for five and a half, six years not in the Hall of Fame? I, I want to talk a little bit. We only got a little bit of time left, but I want to talk about just the, some of the crossover stuff. Uh, one example of uh, Bruno, uh, you know, was... Uh, kind of a generational thing and it was kind of a and I remember seeing it on social media and I, I absolutely flipped over seeing it because it was kind of fun to figure out the connection uh, that Bruno Mars aside from just having the name but Bruno Mars had with, with Bruno San Martino and being able to get those two together to take a picture and then to find out what Bruno Mars's story and how he got the nickname Bruno that was kind of a fun little uh, little footnote in, in the book you know, we were doing a private signing that week. I told Bruno, if I knew that Bruno Mars thing was happening, I would have probably came to town a little bit early. But we were doing a private signing that week, and uh, Bruno told me what happened. Um, Bruno Mars people, of course, you know, years earlier, I don't know if you know this, but Bruno Mars had been on the Ellen DeGeneres show, I believe, and talked about how he was named after a big fat wrestler. And uh, Bruno and I had talked about it a little bit. Um, you know, not much, but it was discussed once or twice. And uh, then the Bruno Mars people knew that the Pittsburgh Steelers had a relationship with Bruno. And again, Bruno was a guy who really just wanted to, 
just stay at home with his wife. But when the Steelers called and asked him to go down there, he did not want to did not want to say no. Now, I think in retrospect, he was very glad that he went. But ultimately, um, it wouldn't have meant anything one way or the other to him um, because he just wanted to lead a peaceful, quiet life. And, and he certainly deserved that. But they sent a beautiful car, took him down there. And when he was telling me the story, I said, you know, Bruno, if you remember, this guy went on TV and said he was named after a big, fat wrestler. He said, Sal, I, I was prepared when I went down there. He, he said, I, I had a picture, and I, and I said, yeah, this is the big, fat wrestler you were named after. <laughs> and he was so apologetic. And uh, so if I had no idea, I didn't, I didn't know, because, you know, obviously Bruno never looked fat in, at all. And uh, Bruno thought he was a great guy. He was more than happy to speak to his father. Um, he, he was mine. He was, and that's the way Bruno is. You know, you could leave him alone at home or you could bring him out. But as a general rule, once he got out there, he was fine. And he did enjoy meeting Bruno Mars for, uh, for sure. And I'm glad for Bruno Mars that he got the opportunity to see who he was named after. And he was able to put um, his father's hero on the phone with him. You, you know, um, let's face it, it wasn't that much longer. And, and Bruno was uh, was gone. I mean, like we did that private signing a day or two later after that, and we were supposed to do another one, and that opportunity never came. You know, even though he wasn't going to travel for signings anymore, we had people, and it's in the it's in the book. There's pictures in the book of the of the private signing that we did at the uh, locally in Pittsburgh, and uh, people were willing to come to town to do it. Hey, great! We're more than we're more than happy to do it. Bruno just didn't want to travel anymore. It is all that it was. The name, the name of the book is Bruno Sammartino, The Autobiography of Wrestling's Living Legend by Bruno Sammartino with co-author credits, of course, going to our guest today, Sal Anthony Carrente. Thank you so very much. And tell people where we can pick up this book. Give us a little bit more info before we uh, head on out today. Okay, well, um, Amazon.com. There's, like I said, there's a color version, black and white version. The only difference between those two books is one is in color for as far as the pictures that can be in color is about 275 of those. Um, there's about 400 pictures overall. Um, that's for the real fan. If you're a real wrestling fan from everything I've been told, even though, uh, the book is not cheap, the colored version of the book, everybody who's purchased it has been very happy that they did. If you just want the, the regular book, um, it's also available on Amazon and both books are 567 pages. Uh, also, um, there's a company called HighSpots.com, and uh, HighSpots is, I think, the main source of wrestling memorabilia and stuff outside of the WWE. There are also uh, Michael Bacchicchio, who runs HighSpots, um, was my partner in the final years of Wrestle Reunion. And when I decided to step back out of it, which I tell Michael all the time, sometimes uh, I regret stepping out of it, and other times I'm thrilled to death that I stepped out of it. But he's developed WrestleCon out of Wrestle Reunion, and uh, he. Uh, knew Bruno and as well. And Bruno always liked to work with him and he's uh, got a little tribute in the book to Bruno. Um, he buys the books, uh, wholesale and, and he sells them, you know, on his website as well. So if you're already a high spots customer, the book's available there. If not, and you're interested in wrestling memorabilia, that's the, certainly the place to get it. And, uh, really right now, those are the only two places, um, where you can get the book. Um, we're happy. It's been on sale about 45 days and so far so good. 
I want to thank you so very much for taking time out to uh, talk about your book, talk about Bruno. And I, I, I definitely extend the door, uh, open door policy for you to come back sometime to talk about some of the stuff you've done in your own wrestling life too, uh, you know, because I want to talk a little bit about uh, a guy that we know mutually, Rob Russin, and uh, some of the stuff you did with IWA and some of the stuff you did with Rob, because thanks to Rob, we, he kind of helped set up this interview between the two of us today. So it's only fair to talk a little bit about those days, right? There's uh, there's a lot to talk about with Rob Russin. Um, it, it goes way back, and um, you know I actually ended up meeting Rob Russin through the gentleman I spoke to earlier. Uh, I spoke about it a little bit earlier, Bob Raskin, and uh, there is a picture of Rob Russin in the book. You probably saw that. And then Rob and I are also roommates for uh, for many years. Not now, but we were for many years in uh, in South Florida and uh, on the west coast of Florida. But there's a lot of wrestling stories and between Australia and um, the United States and different things that uh, that went on. Um, I'm more than happy to come back anytime. Uh, if anybody, if you think anybody wants to hear about some of the craziness I've been involved in, I'm more than happy to share it. Brother, I think we can book this uh, sometime. Uh, in you know, before the year is up, most definitely. For Sal Carrente, I'm Glenn Broggett. This is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Thank you so much for listening.